So we continue in a series. We're in the third week of a series on Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet. Uh, The first week, we looked at the five deadly words for every Christian, including Jeremiah. He had to deal with these right in Jeremiah 1, and we have to deal with these two. What are they? God can't use me because... What did Jeremiah say was the reason? He said, oh Lord, I can't, you can't use me. I'm too young. Maybe you felt too young at times for God to use you. Maybe you felt too old. Maybe you felt too inexperienced, too experienced. Maybe you felt too worldly or too unworldly, too cool or too uncool. It doesn't matter. All of us can have excuses. But what we realize is God can use me. Then we look the next week at saying, okay, if we're now going to take a next step of faith, what does that mean? Because so often, if I eliminate my excuses, what do I want to do? I want to start running. I want to plow people over because I'm ready to serve the Lord. It's like the gates of the Kentucky Derby, and they go flying. And now I'm 10 miles ahead of God, and I ran over my neighbor, and I ran over my spouse, and my children are confused, and we're in a problem time. So what we talked about is how sometimes the next step of faith is patience. We talked about how it means patience is not apathy. It's not sitting on the couch optimistically. What is patience? It means to have the proper respect for God, to trust Him, and to wait on His timing. And so then we say now, okay, we did those things, and now we're a bit into the book of Jeremiah. How do I live by faith? How do I do it? That sounds great, David. Okay, we've eliminated the excuses. We've God's timing. How do I do that? How do I live by faith? So that's where we are. Now, we have a problem. We have many problems in life, but here's the first problem we have to deal with. Unlike Jeremiah, most of us don't directly, audibly hear God's spoken voice out loud. Most of us. If this was a requirement for pastoral ministry, I would be ineligible. Most of us don't have the experience of sitting down to pray and God speaking out loud, and us writing it down, and now having the directions. So that's why we have to have faith, biblical faith. That's why it's needed. But I want to talk to you about what it's not. Biblical faith is not a couple of things. What is biblical faith not? It's not shutting my brain off. It's not just being a drone and saying, I have reasoning, I have knowledge, God doesn't want those. I need to shut my brain off and not think and just whatever. It's also not a blind trust. It's not taking a blindfold on, finding a chair, climbing up on the chair. I'm not going to climb up on the chair because it'll terrify you. But it's not jumping off on there and now blindly trusting and taking a blind leap. Sometimes we have this idea that faith is I'm just going to say yes to God. I'm going to climb up on the chair with my blindfold on and jump wherever he's going. What would happen if I did that? I'd probably sprain my ankle or worse, right? So that's not what faith is. It's also not 100% confidence without doubt. Have you ever felt like the people with faith, they fully trust God 100% of the time in every moment and they have no doubts and they're super Christians with super faith? If that was a requirement, I wouldn't be able to be a pastor, okay? So we should be able to rest assured and say that's not biblical faith. Instead, I need a volunteer, and I'm going to show you what biblical faith is using this chair. First person to come forward is going to show us biblical faith, and no, you don't have to jump off the chair. Someone come forward. I'm going to show you what biblical faith is with a chair, because biblical faith means that I agree to something, I trust, and I accept what I cannot see. So 
Alona's being brave. Alona, I have a question for you. Would you agree that that is a chair? Okay. I agree to basic beliefs about something. That is a chair. And so this chair, that means I'm agreeing to a couple things. First of all, I'm agreeing that theoretically it could support Alona. I'm also agreeing that it's going to be set up in a way where it could maybe go with a table. It could go with other things. I agree that that is a chair. When I say chair, it means something. Also, when I look at the chair, I'm going to trust in it. Actually, I'm not going to trust. I'm going to ask Alona, Alona, would you trust in the chair and sit down? So she's going to sit down. Do you see how faith in something is you agree to beliefs, that's a chair, and you trust in it with your actions. And then you accept what you cannot see. There is more to the chair. Alona, are you a carpenter? Alona's not a carpenter. Are you a machinist? Are you an engineer? She's not any of these things. She's just saying no. Are you a person who oversees an assembly line that makes chairs? No. Do you do upholstery? No. So there's things that go into that chair that she has to accept that she doesn't have a full understanding of, but she can still agree it's a chair and then trust in it by sitting. And that's what it means to have faith in the chair. Thank you, Alona. Let's give a round of applause for a nice brave. Now, here's how that relates to faith in God. The same thing. I agree in the doctrine, the basic beliefs, right? I believe that God is creator. I believe that God is father. I believe that God is redeeming. God's working. God is the God of promise. Basic, basic doctrine that I believe in. I trust. Now, I don't sit in the chair. What do I do? I trust in God's promises through who? Through Jesus. And then I accept that there's more that I just don't know. I can join a faith group and we can learn together and They can try to stump the pastor, and sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, and we learn together and we grow in our faith. I can read the Bible and and get a New Living Translation where it doesn't sound like it's written in a different time period, but it sounds like it's speaking to me today, and then I can maybe upgrade to ESV or some other translation, but I can read Scripture and let it be real to me, but I ultimately accept that there are going to be some limitations with my faith. Can we agree? For Jeremiah, he lives his entire life with biblical faith. His whole life is about agreeing to the truth of God, agreeing that God created, God promises, trusting in those promises. He trusts that God says, hey, I've got a message of hope for you. The difficult situation you're going through, where are we in Jeremiah? We're in the last kingdom after a massive civil war, Israel breaks into Israel and Judah. They're not organized Republican-Democrat. How are they organized? Into 12 ethnic tribes. Ten go north, and now that nation is destroyed. We're in the last kingdom in the last year of the last king. That's where we are in Jeremiah 32 today. And he's going to see that he can trust in God's promises, and he can accept that there's more going on. You're going to see that this poor guy, Jeremiah, is in prison in a city that's surrounded at the end of his country's time. That's a pretty dark time, but he lives his life by biblical faith, and that's what we start to see here. We'll go to the next slide. So we see that his entire life is one of biblical faith. I'm going to read. We're going to be in the 32nd chapter. At first, you heard what we call a holistic reading, where we hear the whole text so we can hear the narrative behind it, the story. Now we're going to teach through it a little bit, and I want to point out, because just as Jeremiah's entire life is one of biblical faith, there are times 
where we start to become me-focused in our faith, and Jeremiah is going to show us not how to do that. But we're going to start by looking at his context. We're going to just go look at the first five verses real quick. It says this, The following message came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of the reign of King Zedekiah, king of Judah. This was also the eighteenth year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Judah was under siege from the Babylonian army, and Jeremiah was imprisoned in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace. King Zedekiah put him there, asking why Jeremiah kept giving this prophecy. This is what the Lord says, I'm about to hand the city over to the king of Babylon. He will take it. King Zedekiah will be captured by the Babylonians and taken to meet the king of Babylon face to face. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon and I will deal with him there, says the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will never succeed. King Zedekiah is the last king. He's not a particularly great guy and he's sick of Jeremiah's doom and gloom. King Zedekiah thinks he can just hold on and he can figure things out. He makes his life and his faith. We talked about faith isn't a blind trust or a leap. He kind of does this leap where he's like, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but we're going to figure it out. That's not biblical faith, but that's how Zedekiah is living. Jeremiah is in prison, and I want to show you what's happening around his city. They're doing a siege. What does a siege look like? In the ancient world, you have a city, and it's got a wall. And then around that, a siege means an enemy army comes and they surround it so no one can come in and no one can go out and now you're stuck. And what do they hope you'll do? They hope you'll run out of food, water, and courage and eventually you'll open the gates and surrender. That's what they're trying to do. They're under a siege. Now this is great for us to look at because we have times where our life feels like we're under siege. During this, Jeremiah is going to be in prison. So we have times where we feel imprisoned, and we have time where we feel under siege. Jeremiah is dealing with both. But he doesn't just give up. What does Jeremiah start to do? He realizes that he needs to do something we call surrender to win. Do you notice this in the first couple verses? He says, hey, what we need to do is we just got to give up. This is over. God has plans for us. God can redeem the situation, but we got to stop holding on. We got to stop trying to make things something that they're not. We got to accept that we are here because of disobedience. That is why we're surrounded. And so, what we need to do is we need to surrender and understand that God is working through the situations, including the king of Babylon. For us, sometimes we need to surrender to win. This is so important that this is what we're covering next week. We're going to look at Jeremiah 38 next week. We're going to talk about biblical surrender. We're going to take the whole time and look at what surrender means, what it doesn't, what does it mean to surrender to win in my life, who do I surrender to, who do I not. But this is what Jeremiah is saying, and it really ticks the king off, so he throws him in jail. And he's furious that this is going on. But our big idea today is that biblical faith places the emphasis on God, not on me. When we find ourselves wondering what comes next, what do I do, what do I not do, if we start to get me-focused, if we start putting on the blindfold and jumping off the chair and taking those leaps that God's not asking us to do, we're making about it ourselves. Instead, biblical faith places the emphasis on who? Not on me, on God. What we're going to see here is that there's times each of us starts to have a me-focused faith. 
and Jeremiah is going to show us exactly what to do and what not to do. We're going to start with this. First off, God is always speaking, and it's verified by his word. You're going to notice that Jeremiah is spoken to directly by God. Most of us won't have this experience, but we're going to talk about what we have instead. Let's look a little bit. We're in 32. It says this. At that time, the Lord sent me a message. Your cousin Hanamel, son of Shalom, will come and say to you, buy my field in Anathoth. By law, you have the right to buy it before it's offered to anyone else. Then, just as the Lord had said he would, my cousin Hanamel came and visited me in the prison. He said, please, buy my field in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. By law, you have the right to buy it before it's offered to anyone else. So buy it for yourself. Then I knew the message I had heard was from the Lord. So Jeremiah is told this. Hey, you're in jail. The city is being sieged. There's a lot of bad going on. But this guy is going to approach you, Hanamel. I think he's one of the great con artists of the Bible. We don't know. But imagine this. You're in jail. You have family land outside a city. There's an army sitting on that land. And your shady cousin comes and asks you for money. That's what Jeremiah is dealing with. And so Jeremiah has to figure out, is this God? Is it not? What's going on? What do I do? He gets this message, and then it happens. Now, for each of us, we may not have the experience of having God directly talk to us like this, but we have Scripture. Scripture is really interesting because what we understand about this, we don't worship the Bible. What do we do with the Bible? One of the things we do is we say that the Holy Spirit worked through the authors, and as Christians, when we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit works through the words here to meet with us and to actually have a new, fresh conversation. Not that the words change, but the word speaks to us in our context today. Let me show you what I mean. A number of years ago, there was a man named C.S. Lewis, wonderful Christian author, wonderful Christian thinker, creator of the Chronicles of Narnia, wonderful Christian man. He later in his life a little bit had an unexpected romance and a marriage, and it was wonderful to a woman named Joy, and we'll throw the graphic up on. And he had this wonderful romance, and then she passed away. And it really was hard for him. As you can imagine, losing your spouse is an incredibly difficult awful experience to go through. And God didn't now appear and speak new words, but God spoke through these words to C.S. Lewis and offered him a measure of peace. Here's what God said through revelation to C.S. Lewis living in the 20th century. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, sorrow, or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. And for C.S. Lewis, even though God didn't get up and speak to him fresh verbally, the Holy Spirit worked through Scripture and really made a difference in his life. And many of the great writings we get from C.S. Lewis are in and around this time period. And he continues to make an impact because of this. Me-centered is saying, oh, I wish God would speak to me. You know, if God would just give me a fresh word today, then I would know exactly what to do. But biblical faith says something different. Biblical faith says, hey, there are Scriptures I'm going to take time to get to know and to learn the scriptures and let them speak into my life. It doesn't matter the situation I face. Where are some places to look? I'm going to give you two spots to go. If you're saying, hey, I want a fresh word from God today. Hey, pastor, where should we start? I'll give you two places. If you want to look in the New Testament, go to the book of James. 
Start reading in James 1. God will speak to you today through whatever you're going through. If you would prefer the Old Testament, go to the third chapter of Proverbs, and God will speak to you today right where you are. And you'll say, wow, it's like that was designed for me in this moment. I can't believe it. That's because God speaks through the Scriptures to us today. Now, biblical faith is good because we move away from the me-centered. We start to say, hey, Lord, I'm going to trust and follow you today. And we remember that God is always in the business of redeeming brokenness. Now, this is something that we forget. In the previous passage, I showed you a couple things where you see a couple difficult situations. First of all, you got this cousin Hanamel, this con artist. He says, hey, Jeremiah, you're in prison. I need money. So Jeremiah could have looked at Hanamel and said, that guy's a deadbeat. Then Jeremiah is in prison in the middle of a siege with the country going down, and he hears directly from the Lord, and he knows that the country is really going down. There's no guessing. There's no speculation. This is real. That can seem like a dead-end situation, but Jeremiah says, no, it's not a dead-end situation. I know God is going to redeem it and work through it. Then you've got this field. The whole text is about this weird field that we have to figure out what's going on with. It's being occupied by enemy troops. And you could say to that, well, that's just a waste. There's, God can't do anything with a field that's just occupied by enemy troops. That's the end of the story. But let's see what happens instead. We continue in Jeremiah 32. Here's what it says, starting in verse 9. So I bought the field. This is Jeremiah at Anathoth. So he's in the middle of this desperate situation, and the relative comes up to him, and he buys the field anyway. Let's see why. Paying Hanamel 17 pieces of silver for it. I signed and sealed the deed of purchase before witnesses weighed out the silver and paid him. Then I took the sealed deed and an unsealed copy of the deed, which contained the terms and conditions of the purchase, and I handed them to Baruch, son of Neriah, grandson of Messiah. I did all this in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, the witnesses who had signed the deed, and all the men of Judah who were there in the courtyard of the guardhouse. Jeremiah has an act of outrageous faith. He is in the middle of being imprisoned during a siege, and he trusts God anyway. And he buys and redeems this field. He doesn't have immediate access to the field because an army is sitting on there. But instead, Jeremiah realizes that he can be a redeemer. This is something that we see all through Scripture, and I want to explain. It's alluded to in our previous part. Have you ever heard the word redeemer? Like we say, Jesus is our Redeemer. Let me show you where it originally comes from. It's an Old Testament thing. I won't go deep in the weeds, Leviticus. But in Leviticus, we learn this concept of what a Redeemer is, and we start to see that it's shown there. And then it's also, we see in Ruth, the story of Ruth is all about, and we're going to throw this graphic on the screen, it's all about being a redeemer and taking a situation and financially restoring it, keeping it in the family. And then that's what we deal with here in Jeremiah. He has the opportunity to take a messed up situation and to financially redeem it. Now, why is that set up? It's a system that God has put in the Old Testament because it reminds people that he's always in the business of redeeming things. He's always in the situation of taking something that looks like a dead end, deadbeat, or lost cause, and instead saying, no, there's a hope and a future. There's redemption for it. There is something coming next. And that's what we see here. 
you'll notice that Jeremiah actually goes through the entire legal process that sounds very similar to land purchase that we do today. If we have any realtors, it's not exactly the same as it was about 2,600 years ago, but look at the things that happens. Jeremiah signs and seals a deed. He weighs and pays silver. He hands the deed copies to the secretary, and there's witnesses. Because biblical faith allowed Jeremiah to do these couple things. To see beyond his current circumstances, and to see that God is always in the business of redemption. And we have that today. We have moments where things look just lost, and like there's no hope, and there's no future, and we can have the tendency to write them off. Instead, we need to see, it's not that we serve myself, because if I have a me-centered faith, then can I do something with it or not? If I can't, it's a lost cause. If I'm living with faith, what does that mean? I agree, I trust, I understand there's more than I know. Therefore, what I can say is, hey, God is willing to work with the things that look like dead ends, dead beats, and lost causes. I want to tell you about a guy I met recently named Kenny. Kenny was a young man in the 1980s, and he was really struggling. He had some really severe challenges in his life. And uh, towards the end of his grandmother's life, she used to say, oh, my grandson's going to be a minister. And they used to joke, and they used to say, "Uh, Grandma, you're losing your mind because Kenny's going to be anything other than a minister. And so he ends up in the basement of a teen challenge in the 1980s, and he gives his life to Jesus. And he says, Lord, I want to I serve you. I want to have next steps for my life. I want to see your hope and redemption. I want to see that even though I'm a person with a difficult past and a difficult present, that you have a future for me. Even though I'm a person who I don't have a ton of training or credentials, that you could use me. And for the next 35 years of his life, he just is a minister and he just serves and he goes where God tells him to do and he does things in relative obscurity until he retires. And he and his wife move and they say, hey, in our retirement we want to plant a small church and we want to do some good. And what they do is rather than saying, hey, we want to have an outreach to homeless people, because Kenny has this view. He looks in the New Testament and it talks about lepers. Have we ever noticed the lepers in the New Testament? The lepers were the people with a skin condition that because of this, It was contagious and infectious and gross, and everybody cast them out of society. And so what Kenny started realizing is, hey, we don't have lepers, but we got homeless people, and we treat them like lepers. And so what he realized is he said, hey, we're not going to plant a church that's going to do outreach to homeless people. We're going to plant a church to homeless people. And he did. And he and his wife pulled out chairs and brought in food and got people together and ate together and worshiped together and saw that God has a future and a hope for people, that they're not deadbeats, they're not lost causes, they're beloved image bearers of God. Now, at the conference that Laura and I went to this past summer, he was named one of our new bishops. Kenny, this obscure guy who gave his life to Jesus in the basement of a Teen Challenge facility, whose life needed to be redeemed by God, and it was, whose circumstances, even though he didn't have all the training and all the education, is now a bishop. And again, he says, what we have to do is we have to stop treating people like lost causes. So here's my question for you on biblical faith. Are you being me-centered and saying things like this, I see deadbeats, I see dead ends, I see lost causes. That homeless guy on the street, 
with the cardboard sign. You know who I'm talking about because he exists in every town nationwide. He makes us uncomfortable. Can we acknowledge that he makes us uncomfortable? And then can we say, hey, I want to repent of that, God. Um, Instead, I can do this. I can pray for that person. I can pray, God, would you send Christians into that person's life? Would you start to do a process of redemption in his life? That person that I disagree with in the election season, who their political views make me really, really, really uncomfortable, can I stop getting into the argument with them? Because I'm not going to change that person's mind anyways. Instead, because I want to make this really real, can I start praying for that person and just praying, God, would you just do some redemption in that person's life? Because I'll tell you, if that person is always coming to us with their really strong political views and hitting us over the head with it, it's probably the symptom of a greater problem. And no, it's not that they have the wrong opinion necessarily. It's that there's some desire to be heard. There's some frustrating thing that's happened in life. Maybe it's a cycle. But God is the God of redemption, and God can use even that person because he can use even you. And I'm going to be honest, each of us have as messed up stuff in our life as that person with the strong opinions because biblical faith says God is all about redemption. And so there's times where we start to make faith all about me And we have to repent of that, and we got to say, you know, God, no, I'm going to keep the emphasis on you. I'm going to see that you, I agree, I trust, I accept there's more than I don't know. And so that means that I can live today to impact tomorrow. We have this problem in society and out of the church called instant gratification. I read an article last night that Americans, for the first time, have accumulated $1 trillion of credit card debt just came out last couple days. I read this last night. One trillion dollars of credit card debt because we have this perpetual thing in our society out of the church and including us that we want now to feel different. So in the words of Dave Ramsey, we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people who don't, whose opinions don't matter. In the church, we don't necessarily have instant gratification. We have another thing. We've said, hey, God wants me to live my best life now. And we say that it's all about how I feel, and it's all about I need a fresh word from God, I need something different, I need to have some emotional experience. But that's not biblical. Instead, biblically, and I'm going to show you, has to do with little clay jars. Let's look at what Jeremiah says as we kind of conclude our passage today says this, Then I said to Baruch, this is verse 13, as they all listened, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Take both this sealed deed and the unsealed copy and put them in a pottery jar to preserve them for a long time. For this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Someday people will again own property here in this land and buy and sell houses and vineyards and fields. So what Jeremiah is saying is you're going to take a deed that's worth nothing right now and you're going to put it in a little jar. No, they didn't have Bennington pottery, but if you sometime go to the Holy Land and you visit the museum where they have the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can see clay jars from the time period of Jeremiah. Not these exact ones. But what he says is take this deed that seems to be worth nothing now, Put it in the clay jar because God's going to use it to impact future generations. A year from now, Jerusalem will fall. 
the temple will be destroyed. But 70 years from now, they'll be returned. And after that, they'll rebuild a temple. And after that, they're going to rebuild the gates. And after that, they'll rebuild the walls. And eventually, the Messiah will come. And there's a hope for the future. So therefore, what Jeremiah realizes is that he can live today to impact tomorrow. My grandfather served little tiny churches in North Dakota out in the middle of nowhere. Sometimes there was four to 14 people there. Now, if he was looking for this big emotional Jesus experience, it didn't exist. These were quiet towns. There was no internet. There was no live streaming. It was just the fundamentals of ministry. It was getting some people together, singing some songs, praying together, doing the Lord's Supper, getting to know neighbors. And it didn't build a mega church out in North Dakota. What did it do? It had an impact in my family's life to the point where my grandfather had a son who became a pastor, and he had another son who became a pastor. And in our family, we've had doctors, we've had nurse practitioners, we've had school teachers, we've had police officers, we've had people who've made difference in business. We've had all these different people in our family live out this legacy that was my grandfather putting something in a jar in a prairie and saying, hey God, you take it for the future, I'm going to plant a seed of ministry. For us, maybe you have children, maybe you have grandchildren, so I'm going to speak to you for a second. There's a tendency when we hang out with our little kids, there's a tendency to want to just survive the time. I invite you, don't sit on your phone on the couch while your kids are playing, put the phone down and get on the ground with them and be ridiculous. You are taking your time and putting it in a jar for the future because your child or grandchild will remember when mom, dad, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, friend was ridiculous and played unicorns. That's what Ruby wanted to do yesterday. She was playing unicorn. She has this unicorn dress costume thing, and I had this stick unicorn. We're running around neighing and being unicorns. They'll remember that, and you'll impact tomorrow. That starts to be what faith is, that we sit and we... When our kid asks us the really weird question about faith, about Jesus, and it makes us uncomfortable because we don't want to talk about death because the squirrel fell off the building into the trash can, drowned, and now our three-year-old sees a dead squirrel. True story. And now it's uncomfortable because I have a three-year-old and a dead squirrel, and I don't know what to do, and she wants to know. We talk about it, and we take a shovel, and we pick up the dead squirrel, and we take it to the backyard, we bury it, and we talk through death, and we talk about heaven. It's uncomfortable, but it impacts tomorrow. That's what we have the opportunity to do. What are you putting in your clay jar today? Not that it's going to give now some sort of wonderful sensation, but you're going to say, Lord, I don't need to feel amazing today. Instead, I can trust you, and I can invest today to impact tomorrow. Because a me-centered faith says if today doesn't feel amazing, something must be wrong. But think of our clay jars. Biblical faith is, God, help me live today to impact tomorrow. What can I put in that clay jar? What, are, what little act? Maybe it's getting involved in my church. Maybe it's saying yes to that annoying pastor when he keeps saying, there's more for you. There's more for you. Hey, you could lead a group. Hey, you could pray with your neighbors. Hey, you could buy a $6 Bible on Amazon and give it out. I know that, by the way. There's a stack of $6 Bibles back there that we're going to start giving out. You can do small things to today put 
your paper in the clay jar and invest for tomorrow. So here's our thing. Today, biblical faith places the emphasis on God, not on me. Where are you placing the emphasis? We'll go to our big idea. Where are you placing your emphasis? Are you all about me? Me, myself, and I? Or are you saying, hey, Lord, we're taking next steps. We've eliminated excuses. We've said patience is a step. Now I'm ready to do something. Now I can agree to doctrine. I can trust Jesus. I can accept that there's always more for me to know, but I can place the emphasis on God, not on me. So we'll invite the elders forward, and um, Todd will lead us in amazing grace, and he can come up. But I invite you, as our elders come forward, we give an opportunity to respond to each message. We're going to keep it super simple. If you're not God-focused in your faith, if your faith is to me-focused, come down. We want to pray for you. And also, we always open the altar for prayers for healing, prayers for peace, prayers for friends. Together, we can make a difference for Jesus. Let's sing together. We'll sing Amazing Grace. I invite our elders and other leaders to come down, and please come down for prayer. We want to talk about this, and let's sing together.